So today in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see that our passage is a grand story. And every great story needs to have characters that we can relate to in the story. And in our story today, there's not really many uh, like individual named characters in the story, but there is like a big group of people in the story that we can relate to. Um, and they're given kind of a general description here. And, uh, and we don't just relate to that group of people. You and I are part of that group of people. This is a story about you and about me. And so throughout this story, the Bible uses these uh, plural pronouns, you and we and us, and uh, to talk about this group of people. And whenever you see those pronouns, I want you to be sure that you hear them as including yourself. This isn't just a story about um, the, the people of ancient Ephesus who were part of this church that Paul originally wrote to. This is a story about you. So it starts off in uh, verse 1, it says, as for you. And when you hear that, that means as for you, you as an individual. Now, some of you are very cooperative with preaching like this, and you're ready to, to accept that this is all about you without any, um, any uh, resistance or anything, and that's great. But I also expect that some of you are out there thinking, eh, maybe it's about me but I'm not just going to take your word for it. And that's okay, too, if you're a little bit more skeptical about that. Um, but whichever side you fall into on that, as we go through this story today, I want you to look at this description of this group of people and just ask yourself, does this describe you? Does this story ring true for you? And does it fit your understanding of yourself and the world? And I'm not just saying, think about whether it agrees with what you've always thought and what you've always believed about yourself, but think about whether or not this description challenges your worldview and ask yourself whether this might actually be a better way of understanding things than what you believe right now. So another good thing that every good story needs is a conflict, right? Um, without a conflict, there's really not much of a story to tell. Um, you know, I'd love to have a happy life where it's just all smooth sailing and straight paths and smooth roads, but that's just not the world we live in, and, uh, and it doesn't make for a very exciting story. Um, we just don't live in a, in a world that's like that. And last week, uh, Pastor Mike preached about the, uh, the three enemies that we have that create a lot of conflict in our lives. They were the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he talked about those from those first three verses of chapter 2. And Sabrina already mentioned it, but I will say again, if you, if you missed that last week or if uh, you just want to hear it again and really uh, let it sink in better, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's on our website and on various other places where you can find it. But the easiest place is clearwater.church. But, um, but today, we're, we're, we are going to go back and look at those first three verses again. But we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle on the story this time. And, um, and the emphasis last week that Mike had was all just on the conflict. And he didn't really bring it to a resolution. He didn't bring the story to a close and have, uh, how is this conflict solved? Instead, what he did is he just teased this week's sermon. He said, next week, Pastor James is going to come and tell you 
the rest of the story. And that's what we're going to do here. So we are going to go past those three verses and uh, all the way up through verse 9 and see how our conflict can be resolved. But the point is, uh, for now, the, the, the conflict exists. We don't live in a story in which life goes on in unending bliss and joy without threats or setbacks. And while you might think it is negative thinking and pessimism to talk about conflict and doom and gloom, it's necessary because no one should want to live blind to the problems around them. Ignorance is not bliss, and suffering through life on a path that unknowingly leads to destruction is a fate that we must avoid. And so, we're going to take off the blinders and take a serious look at the conflict that brings us so much suffering in our lives. Now, another thing that uh, every great story needs is, uh, we're getting some feedback here, sorry. Step back a little bit more behind the speakers, okay. I'm sure Dale will get that sorted out. But anyway, the other thing that every great story needs is a hero. And of course, we all want to be the hero of the story. The character that we want to relate to in the story is the noble hero. We want to be the one who can slay the dragon and save the princess and, and, and be the hero. And there are stories in the Bible where God does want you to be the hero and he does call you to be the hero. And next week, that's going to be our emphasis uh, as we continue on in Ephesians, is going to be on God's plan for you to be heroic. But, uh, but for today, in this story, you are not the hero. You are the princess that needs saving. And for all you guys out there, uh, let me rephrase that a little bit, made it a little more palatable for you. Uh, you're, you're not princesses. You're British soldiers on the beaches of Dunkirk, France in 1940 who are trapped by the German army bearing down on you, and you need to be rescued off that beach before the Germans come and destroy you. You need to be taken to safety across the English Channel. And I know that is not the way that uh, we like to see ourselves in stories. We don't want to be the one who's helpless and in need of rescue. We want to be the rescuer. Right? I get that. I, I want to be the hero too. I don't want to see myself as helpless. I don't want to see myself as desperate for someone else to come and save me. If I need help, it's just what I need help with is somebody to toss me a sword so I can go slay the dragon myself, right? But here's the thing. If you don't see yourself as needing to be saved, you won't be. As long as you think that you can save yourself or that all you need is just a little help, the hero will not come in to rescue you. And who is the actual hero of our story? Well, no big surprise, it's Jesus is the hero of our story. Um, God is the hero. He is our rescuer. He is the one who resolves the conflict. And that is a great thing because he is the hero that has the ability that we need. 
He is the only one who is capable of dealing with our problem and getting us out of trouble. Only Jesus can slay the dragon. So that's the outline of our story. That's kind of the basic plot. That's the characters in our story. So now let's uh, open our Bibles and let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and let's fill in some of the details of this particular story. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So there's that phrase, as for you. This is a description of you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And of course, that's assuming that you're a Christian. If you haven't yet reached the point in your spiritual journey where you've trusted Jesus for salvation, you can switch that from past tense to present tense. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But Paul, writing to a group of Christians, he says, you were dead. So what does that mean? I mean, obviously, uh, people who are not yet Christians are not physically dead. We're not emotionally dead, as if you're, you know, walking around with no uh, feelings and just blank stares on your faces. The kind of dead we're talking about here is a spiritual death. And that kind of a death that describes someone who is utterly unresponsive to God. It's the kind of dead that is completely helpless to save itself. It's dead like a dead battery. There's no power. There's no strength. There's no spark. So when this person hears Jesus saves, he says, not interested. And when he hears someone say, you need a savior, he says, I don't see the need. The spiritually dead person hears, what you are doing is sinful. And he says, who made you the judge? And that was me. And that was you. So now, um, if you're tracking with me and you're believing this uh, first truth, I want you to repeat after me a core affirmation. We're going to do this a couple of times through this sermon. So just, uh, I'll read the affirmation and then you repeat it to me. Here it goes. I was dead in my sins. I had no power to save myself. On my own, my situation was hopeless. Next verse continues to describe this situation. It says in verse 3, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It says all of us. And notice the change there from uh, second person. He's been saying you were dead in your sins. Now he's saying all of us. We're in the same situation. That's because Paul, who was the human author of this section of the Bible here, he wants to make it clear to the people of Ephesus and the rest of the people who are going to read this letter that he did not think he was any better than the people that he was writing to. 
And the Bible is very clear on this in many places. The world is not divided into two groups, the good righteous people over here and the bad sinful people over here. In fact, there, there are no good righteous people. We are all bad sinful people. I am a bad sinful person. And you are a bad sinful person. All of us also lived among them. The last line here then points out the real problem with this situation. Because, see, we might be tempted to think, uh, you know, well, if we're all in the same boat, then it's really not such a big deal that we have this problem. So it's, uh, it's not such a big problem if it's the same for all of us. I might be no better than the rest, but I'm no worse either. So what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal because of the last phrase of that verse where it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Wrath is a scary word. And it's one thing to suffer the wrath of someone who is weaker than yourself, someone who doesn't really have the power to be a real threat to you. Or even to suffer the wrath of someone who's roughly your equal, who you can stand toe-to-toe with them, and maybe they're going to harm you, but maybe you'll be able to hold your own against them. But that's not our situation here. The wrath that we are deserving is the wrath of God, the almighty judge of the universe. This is someone whose wrath you do not want to experience. So Nahum, one of God's messengers who was sent to reveal God to his people, he wrote this about God and his wrath in his book of prophecy. He said, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are shattered before him. See, God does not and will not tolerate evil. And that's a good thing. What kind of God would he be if he looked at sin and he said, yeah, that's okay, I don't mind. But of course, this is the conflict. We are all sinful people and God's wrath is on us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That means we have no power to get ourselves out of this situation. We have no spark of life to give us hope of escaping from our sins that bring on us the wrath of God. And whose fault is that? Who's the villain in our story today? How did we end up as princesses imprisoned in a tower guarded by a fire-breathing dragon? Or how did we end up on that beach in northern France with the German blitzkrieg bearing down on us? Is it God's fault? Some people think so. When they hear this story in the Bible, they think that this is God's fault. Here is God who is unwilling to overlook our sins. It's his stubborn refusal to compromise and just let some things slide that's the real problem here. If God simply had lower standards, we wouldn't have a problem. If God wasn't angry at our sin, we'd be fine. 
But here's the thing. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. Sin actually is bad. It is harmful to us and to the people around us. Sin ruins everything. If God just allowed us to continue in our sin and just ignored it, this would not be a good thing at all. We would be forever stuck in a sinful world containing pain and suffering and injustice and greed and racism and sexism and violence and abuse. The problem is not that God is angry with sin. The problem is sin. Because when God sees emotional abuse in a relationship, he sees his daughter, the little girl that he knit together in her mother's womb, the child that he loves, being abused by some guy. Should that not make God angry? What kind of God would say to the guy, eh, don't worry about it, no big deal. God is not the villain in our story. Even in his role as the wrathful judge, God is the good guy. He is the one who is coming in to punish the wicked people who deserve punishment. So then who is the villain in our story? It's me. And it's you. We are the ones who are sinning against God and against each other. We are betraying the love of our Creator. We are selfishly ignoring the needs of those around us while we live in luxury. We are trampling over each other for the sake of our own selfish goals. See, our story is not about a sweet, innocent princess who never did anything to anybody who was locked up in a tower by some evil sorcerer who came along. No, our prison is our own making. We deserve the trouble that we are in. We are dead in our transgressions and sins, not in someone else's transgressions and sins. And this is the point where a lot of people just reject the story. They don't want to see themselves as the helpless character in need of rescue, and they certainly don't want to see themselves as the villain of their own story. We want to be the hero. And yeah, most people will say, okay, I'm one of these modern heroes, a flawed hero, right? Um, they, they may be more of a Tony Stark character and not so much a Steve Rogers character, right? Uh, but wasn't Tony really the one who was the ultimate hero of the story? right? And that may be the world's story. That may be the kind of hero that we want to be, but that is just a story. In reality, you are not the hero. You are the villain of your own story. Iron Man is not real, and I am the villain of my own story. And that's a huge deal. Because if you reject that point, if you say, it isn't my fault, if you did not acknowledge the responsibility for your situation and your inability to help yourself and your need for Jesus to come and save you, 
then he won't save you. He does not force his salvation on the unwilling. So if you believe this truth, we're going to do another repeat after me affirmation of the truth we just talked about. So here it goes. I am not the hero of my story. I am the victim and the villain. Jesus is the only hero who can save me. So if we do acknowledge our need for a Savior, if we just said that and we meant it, then here's the good news. The good news is, after all this description of our terrible situation, our sin, our spiritual deadness, the wrath of God, then we come to verses 4 and 5. And here's what it says in verses 4 and 5. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Yeah, the last phrase of verse 3 was about the wrath of God. But the first phrase of verse 4 is about the love of God. And the rest of this whole section is about God's love for us, his mercy toward us, and his grace for us. God is a God of wrath, but he is also a God of love and of mercy and of grace. It is because of his great love for us. You see, God sees us in our helpless state. He sees us in need of rescue. He knows that it's our fault and that we deserve what's coming to us. And he loves us. Why does he love us? Is it because we are so lovable? Is it because we deserve his love? No, we are sinful and in rebellion against him, and we deserve his wrath. God loves us because it is in his character to love. He loves us because he is a loving God. And while it may be humbling for us to admit that we deserve wrath from God and not love, it's actually a very reassuring truth. And here's why. It's because if it was up to us to somehow earn God's love and to be worthy of God's love, then we might mess it up. We might fall short of the standard and end up on the outside looking in at God's mercy and grace. But when we realize that what the Bible says is true, that we all do fall short of God's standard, we are not worthy of his love, but he loves us anyway, well, then we can have a security and a confidence that we could never have it was up to us to earn God's love. Our salvation is based on the unchanging character of God himself, not on our own moral performance or our religious practices. God wants you to stop sinning, but his love for you is not dependent on your level of success in that. God wants you to do good, but his mercy and grace are not earned 
by our good deeds. God is not weighing your sins and your good deeds on two sides of a balance to see whether or not the good outweighs the bad. And that's a good thing, too, because my bad outweighs my good. And so does yours. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. In another place in the Bible, uh, it puts the same idea like this in in, uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, it says, You see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saved us. Because he loves us and we needed to be saved. And his salvation comes in a form that's often imitated in many stories. He sacrifices himself on our behalf. He dies for us. And then he comes back from the dead. He took our sins on the cross. He died for them, suffering the just punishment that we deserved. You see, this is how God is able to be true to his righteous character and also be forgiving. He can't simply let sins go unpunished. That would be unjust and unrighteous. God tells us in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. The just punishment for our sins is eternal death. But when Jesus died on the cross, an innocent man unjustly executed... He paid that wage. He took our payment on himself and died on our behalf. And since he was not just another sinful man, but God himself come in the flesh, his death was sufficient to pay for the sins of all who put their faith in him. But Jesus, of course, did not stay dead. He triumphed over death itself. And he won the ultimate victory so that we can also benefit from his victory. Just as he rose from the dead, we too will rise and we will literally live happily ever after. So if you believe this one, then let's do another affirmation together. Here we go. Repeat after me. Jesus historically died in my place. Saving me from the wrath that I deserved. And he won the ultimate victory over death so that I too may have eternal life. And that's described uh, in future uh, uh, in the next couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, describes that eternal life. It says... And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So our, our resurrection is stated here in the past tense uh, and the future tense. See, God has already raised us up with Christ. That is, once we were spiritually dead in our sins, but God has made us spiritually alive. We are now able to respond to God and to love him and to appreciate him his love, and his forgiveness. And we're able to make progress toward our sanctification. We're able to serve his kingdom through good works. All of that is possible because God has already raised us up. He has already given us new life in Christ. But it's also future. In the coming ages, it says in the verse here, that is in the eternal kingdom of heaven, when we will live forever with God in paradise, God will eternally display his grace and in the kindness that he has shown us and that he will continue to show us. So here the Bible calls this the incomparable riches of his grace. Grace is a word for the good things that God has given us that we do not deserve. And it's paired a couple of verses back with the phrase mercy. Mercy and grace often go together in the Bible. And the simple way to understand those two ideas is that mercy is when we deserve to be punished, but God does not give it to us. And grace is when we are rewarded despite the fact that we do not deserve it. So both of those actions are motivated by God's love and made possible by the death of Christ. And the grace and mercy of God will be on eternal display in us as we, enjoy, as we uh, live through joy in heaven with him forever. And our last verses today are, 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 are one of the more famous uh, sentences in the Bible where it just summarizes so much of the key ideas of Salvation, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. A lot of that is a summary restatement of what we've already been talking about here this morning, uh, but one of the key new ideas in this sentence is the concept of faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is trusting Jesus for our salvation. Faith says, I believe God's story. I believe that I am a sinner in need of someone to save me and that Jesus is the one who can do it. Faith is knowing that we can stand at the final judgment at the end of the age and Jesus will save us from wrath. We will pass the judgment on his merit and not our own. Jesus spoke about this using another key word that's kind of a synonym for our faith in this context, uh, believe. So in one of the, one, another one of the more famous passages in the Bible, in the uh, Gospel of John, Jesus said this. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, it says here, God loves the world. That means God loves all of us, and he makes his offer of salvation available to all. But we must respond in faith. We must believe in the name of God's one and only Son, trusting him to be our hero, to slay the dragon and bring us to freedom and safety. And when we believe in him, we will not perish, but have eternal life. So one more affirmation to close off here. So repeat after me, if you believe this, I believe in Jesus, and I will not perish, but have eternal life. All right, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for loving us despite our rebellion against you. We thank you that you sent a hero to save us. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to give us faith, continue to give us belief in him so that we can be your people and we can enjoy salvation from our sinful condition and escape wrath at the judgment and live in joy for eternity. Lord, we ask this. Amen.